happy monday and happy november we are officially officially in fall and i don't know about you but i am loving this cooler weather thank you all for joining us this morning i'm sanaa and this is let's grab coffee on wyxr 91.7 fm and also available anytime anywhere on wyxr.org well, you know that every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So go ahead and grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Over the past few years, we've seen increased attention to the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion, particularly in the workplace. But more recently, we've also witnessed ongoing contentious debates over how or even if diversity, equity, and inclusion should be incorporated as part of young people's education. But what exactly does diversity, equity, and inclusion mean? And what does it look like in practice. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Mary McConnor. Dr. McConnor is a scholar practitioner in the field of higher education. She has held administrative and academic positions at large public research universities, land-grant institutions, and a private religious-affiliated university. Her professional and academic research interests include transformative learning, evaluating teaching excellence, international education, student engagement, globalizing teaching and the curriculum, and of course, diversity and inclusion. Good morning, Dr. Mary McConnor. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Dr. Laybourne. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, yes. I am so excited to have this conversation with you this morning. And I have to tell our listeners, so Dr. McConnor just recently gave an excellent presentation for the Junior League of Memphis. Memphis Apex Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion event, uh, where she talked about allyship, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that later in the show, uh, but I knew I had to have her on because she's such a wealth of knowledge around a topic that is so important, not just because it's circulating kind of in the you know national conversation, but because of what it really means if it's done correctly, um, and I think we have to talk about it here on Let's Grab Coffee because we've mentioned different bits and pieces over um, you know, the course of this last year being on the air, but then I realized I've never had an actual expert about <laughs> DE and I on the show so that we can have a really informed conversation. So I'm so glad that you said yes to chatting with me today. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. And I mean, it's no secret, you know me, you know that this is an area I'm so passionate about, especially social justice education and just DE&I in general. So yeah, I'm just, I'm glad to be here with you today and looking forward to a good conversation. Yes, yes, I am so excited. So let me just start with this. So can you tell our listeners, we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think so much to where um, part of its meaning or significance have been diluted in some ways, you know, when terms become buzzwords and people yeah. aren't exactly familiar with what the purpose is or the goal. So could you tell us just a little bit about what DE&I is and maybe even what it's not? Okay. 
Yeah, and you know what, DEI has become such an umbrella term that I think a lot of people think they're the same things, right? But diversity, equity, and inclusion are very distinct things. Um, and so diversity is just about about difference, right? About all the different lived experiences we bring, the different backgrounds, ethnicity, race, uh, religions, that's diversity. Whereas inclusion is about, it's more about uh, creating a sense of belonging. Do the individuals who are a part of a community or organization feel like that they are included in that organization, right? Do they feel like they belong there? Um, and so, and then equity, you know, I touched on this a little bit during my talk about allyship, or, or it might have been before that, but equity and equality often get used interchangeably, right? And equality is about sameness. Does everybody have the same things, you know, whereas equity is more about looking at the individual and saying, okay, what does this individual need in order to succeed? Because, and I'll give a personal example. Uh, I am neurodivergent. Uh, neurodivergent. And so uh, I have dyslexia, for example. And so for me growing up, and even now, there are certain accommodations that I may need that someone who's neurotypical may not need. So, uh, you know, I think about needing a quiet space or time and a half on a test when I was a student. Um, and so that's an example of equity, right? Making sure that people have the resources or whatever it is that they need in order to be successful and not treating everyone necessarily the same. So mm -hmm. It's really important that we talk about the difference between the two because they get uh, used interchangeably all the time. And I'm just like, no, but that's, that's more equality than equity, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think that is so important to bring up that distinction because I kind of think for a while there had been a focus on equality, right? That we want equality. Uh, but as you mentioned, there are certain maybe even individual or group characteristics or historic barriers that require more um, focus on equity versus simply just saying, okay, everyone has the same thing. Um, so I, I love your example and especially being an educator, I'm definitely familiar with different accommodations and I like that framing of, you know, giving people what they need in order to be successful. Right. Um, and I think that is so key because we want people to be successful. The other point that you brought up when you were talking about inclusion were these feelings of belonging yeah. and that is so cute. You know, that's just a, a very human desire and need that we all have to feel that we belong and feelings of belonging in the organizations and institutions that we are a part of is so key. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the ways that we can foster these feelings of belonging or foster inclusion or to say it another way, even if there are certain like practices or policies where we see people feeling excluded. Yeah, and there, I mean, there's so many different ways to go about it. I mean, but of course there are some best practices, right? And, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit last week too, where, you know, you may have different affinity groups uh, on your campus or within your organization. And then that's just one way for people to feel like, okay, I, I feel like, this, I can connect with this particular uh, group and this makes me feel a little bit more included on campus. Um, you know, you have different programs and initiatives. Um, one of the things that, you know, we like to do in higher education, we have lots of events for students. Um, and so you might have every, everything from doing um, 
you know, different events around different heritage month celebrations to, to just having discussions. And I, I think the key really at just, I think a big part of it is making sure that we're having conversations with the individuals who may not feel a sense of belonging within the organization. So I think awareness is the biggest part of it and saying, okay, what can we do better? What can we do as an organization to make you feel more included, right? And not so much just asking for the sake of asking, but really listening and saying, okay, we're going to build structures around this. We're going to build policies around this. We're going to make sure that we are intentional and including all the various stakeholders, whether it be, and, and I'm talking specifically about higher education because I work in academia, but you know, whether it be for our faculty population, our student population, staff, administration, even alumni, you know, just having those different ways to make sure people feel like, you know what, I like this organization, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and going back to the diversity piece and the inclusion piece, um, and Russell Wigington mentioned this during his talk about diversity is kind of the easy part kind of you know when you think about it, it it's easy to bring a group of people together but it's much harder to create an inclusive environment and say okay I have all these people here now what am I doing to foster an environment where they feel like I belong here and that and that's the hard piece and a lot of organizations I think um you know that that's an area that just requires focus they have to work a lot harder on that inclusion and equity piece than they do the diversity at this point especially in the academy uh, because we are seeing that the student population is becoming increasingly diverse right um so that that that's the easy part like i said um but it's the, the inclusion and equity and belonging that requires the most focus a lot of times Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yes. And you mentioned um, Dr. Russell Wigington, who was the opening speaker uh, for that Junior League event that I mentioned previously. And you're right, the diversity is the easy part in many ways. It is how do we actually create the structures, as you mentioned, the policies and practices that foster inclusion and that ensure equity, because it is a process. And one thing that that people hate is a process <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah but but I will say this and I the thing about DE and I the thing about this work it's not going to be a quick fix and anybody and I, I'm just going to keep it real because you know I'm seeing a lot of positions open up at different organizations and companies you're seeing like chief diversity officer vice president for diversity equity inclusion I mean left and right um, and I think organizations, I think the intent is right, but I think they have to realize, okay, when you bring this person on, one, recognize that they're going to need help. It's not just one person's job to shift the culture, mm -hmm. to, to try to make it more inclusive. Um, and then the second point is make sure you give that person the resources they need to succeed, right? And so it's just a lot of things. I've been seeing it more and more and I'm like, okay, this is a good thing, but we have to recognize that it change will not happen overnight. It is a process. Uh, <laughs> and I know I use that word again, but you know, it requires strategic planning and it requires working with various stakeholders uh, within that organization to really get to the change you're hoping to see. So mm -hmm. I just, I just had to throw that in there because I'm seeing it more and more. I'm like, uh oh, you know, I hope organizations realize this, this is not a quick fix. It, it takes time. Mm -hmm. I think, as you mentioned, a lot of organizations are understanding the importance of 
uh, being attentive to diversity, equity, and inclusion kind of overall, but there does seem to be a, a barrier or a bit of an obstacle once we get to, okay, how do we implement it? So especially if I'm thinking about over this these past couple years, as we've seen um, a lot of very high profile police brutality um, incidents where we saw a kind of resurgence of organizations trying to kind of show that they are attuned to diversity or that they're trying to be inclusive. But we've also seen a lot of organizations fall flat on those yeah. efforts. Um, so as you mentioned, there's on one hand, organizations are more aware on some level of like, okay, we have to do something. Mm -hmm. But what that actually looks like in practice can vary, um, you know, widely across organizations um, for the reasons you mentioned. Of course, resources being a big one, but also that it's not just the chief diversity officer's job, uh, but rather it's everyone in an organization, it's their job. So I'm wondering if you could talk about how do you get buy-in from the different populations at an organization or the different stakeholders or interest groups within an organization? Yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's not easy, but it can be done. And I think the, the biggest thing is it has to start all the way at the top. <laughs> and so, you know, the reason I mentioned the chief diversity officer role is because that's a role that, you know, I've worked in, I'm familiar with that. Um, but I mean, when you're CEO and the individuals, at, even at the board level and, and the individuals at the executive level say, okay, this is a priority, you know, that that's number one is having the support um, from people at the senior leadership level is really important. Um, and then, so of course, I'm looking at this from a higher ed perspective. Mm -hmm. um, I think another thing is, especially when working with students, is making sure that they feel included in the process. And so a lot of times, I think some of the mistakes we make uh, is we go in with certain assumptions like, oh, our students will want to see these kind of programs or these kind of events. And, and this will this should create uh, that culture of belonging, right? Uh, but really the key is to say, hey, you know, what are some things you would like to see? What are some different um, programs or initiatives that you feel like would create a better campus climate, right? And so talking to different stakeholders, talking to faculty, I, you know, doing the same thing and saying, hey, you know, this is something that's really important to the organization and we want to hear your feedback and, and everything, I think, especially in DE&I, everything has to start with that initial assessment of, okay, where are we, right? Because mm -hmm. you can't, you can't really know where you're going or what the problems are until you do a really in-depth assessment of, okay, these are some of the key issues. I have all this feedback. I've done these focus groups. I've done these surveys. Now let's come up with some strategic ways to address this, to become better as a, as, a, as a collective and to make sure that everybody feels like they're included in the process. Mm -hmm. So hopefully, hopefully I answered your question there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah. yeah, I think it's, you know, on one hand, you have kind of these general procedures or practices that can be implemented across organizations. So like you said, um, raising awareness, taking assessments, and then deciding, okay, how are we gonna move forward with the resources that we have? Um, and I think that's a, a general kind of process <laughs> that can be applied across institutions or organizations. But what it actually looks like in practice is gonna differ depending upon 
who is part of your organization and kind of what are the different um, groups that are represented and that need to be, you know, feel, have those feelings of belonging and inclusivity and equity. And that can look very different um, depending upon where you are. So I'm just thinking about, you know, I think most listeners know I work at the University of Memphis. We have a growing um, Latino student body population. Um, and so mm-hmm. our efforts around DE&I are going to look very differently today than they would have 10 years ago when our Latino student population was, you know, not really substantial if, if present at all, right? So those efforts are going to look different. And I just say that to say you can't have kind of a, a one size fits all approach. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, one thing you touched on, I love that. Like, um, it's almost like in DE&I, because it's always changing, right? It's an evolving field, but you have to be so aware. You have to evolve with the individuals you're serving. So you, you talked about like this particular, we've seen a, a spike or an increase uh, for this particular population. So we recognize we need to focus more on making sure that we are doing things for this particular population, right? And so that's the thing too, is constantly evolving too. And if you're not keeping up, <laughs> and, and, you know, we talk about this, like I'm a part of a, an organization called NADAHI, the National Association of Diversity Officers in Higher Education. And if you're not keeping up with best practices and how the field is evolving, it's really easy to be like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> what I'm doing is really outdated and I'm not really engaging in practices that are uh, serving the populations we serve. So yeah, it, it, you absolutely have to evolve with the individuals you're serving. And, so, and that's for any organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about there might be things that you want to add as you're involved in DEI efforts. Um, but mm-hmm. I'm also wondering, you know, are there often things that might need to be subtracted or eliminated as we're thinking about DEI efforts at, you know, in a higher education setting or in other organizations as well? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. Are there things that need to be eliminated? I think one thing that came to mind is I think a lot of times people um, view compliance and culture as one when they're really two separate entities, right? Mm. Um, and so anytime you're looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion within your organization, you have to recognize there are two distinct things, right? So you have the compliance piece. And you know, that's like Title Six, Title Seven, ADA, Section 504, that, that piece, right? Where you have federal laws telling you, you have to do this, or this is illegal, you cannot discriminate. Um, but then you have the culture piece. And that's completely separate uh, in some ways, because it's going to be unique to that organization. Like, okay, what is our culture like here? You know, it's, it's not something that the federal government can tell you like, okay, these are some things every organization should do. I mean, they have the federal regulations, but their culture is very specific and unique to that organization. And so you have to assess where you are as an organization in order to really uh, create a culture of inclusivity, right? And hopefully, hopefully that makes sense. So yes, you have the compliance piece and that's, that's important, uh, but you also have culture and they have to both be equally important. And, and I think sometimes people focus on one, like they might focus on just the culture and not so much a compliance or they might focus too much on compliance and not the culture. And, and, and they have to go hand in hand. You have to focus on both 
Mm, oh, I like this idea of compliance and culture. I never thought about it in this way. So I want to dig more deeply into this idea of culture, but let's mm-hmm. take a quick break first. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. We're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Mary McConnor, a scholar practitioner in the field of education and an expert on diversity and inclusion. Now, before the break, you brought up this distinction between compliance and culture when we're thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. So of course, compliance being the legal stuff, right? All of the federal laws that we do have to follow around um, anti-discrimination. But you brought up this piece about culture. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was so unique because every workplace has a culture, even though we may not think of it or it's very intangible, right? And that can be part of the reason why it's hard to change a workplace culture. Uh, But it is that culture that leads to feelings of belonging. It's the culture that fosters inclusivity. I know an example that folks often give around like workplace culture when it comes to gender is like if all the deals kind of get made on the golf course, which is typically where all the guys, you know, hang out on the weekend, um, that might make it hard for women in that organization who either A, don't play golf or B, have the childcare and homemaking responsibilities (laughs) within their household as well, right? And so that could be a barrier to some of those unspoken norms within you know a workplace and so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, different elements of either workplace culture or within institutions of higher education specifically um, aspects of culture that might foster these feelings of belonging or that might even be barriers Mm. Yeah, you know, essentially what culture focuses on is the environment, right? The environment Mm -hmm. that people are in. um, And like you mentioned, whether or not they feel included or excluded. And, you know, one thing I kind of want to talk about just to kind of talk about in modern terms, we're seeing this great resignation, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's been eye opening for a lot of employers, because there was this assumption of, oh, people are leaving because we're not paying them enough. And so when jobs started paying more and people weren't necessarily running to sign up (laughs) or interview for these positions, it's like, okay, it's more to this than just the money aspect or just, you know, you know, I think people have spent the time to really reassess and say, you know what, I want to work somewhere where I feel valued. Mm. I want to work somewhere where I feel like my voice is heard. And so what we're seeing in the modern workforce is that more and more people are um, kind of reassessing what is important when it comes to work and work environments and cultures. And so, and, and as a DEI person, that makes me happy um, because, it, and here's why, not so much because, you know, we're losing great people and they're going to different fields, <laughs> mm-hmm. but more because people are recognizing like, you know what? culturally, this is what I want. This is what would make me feel more included. And so it is an employee's labor market right now. And it's forcing us to reassess and reevaluate like, okay, what can we do better to retain great people and to recruit great people? Um, And so we're seeing this across fields, not just in higher education, but like pretty much any fields you can think of right now, we are seeing people uh, really 
really personally assess what they want when it comes to a workplace environment and culture. And, and, and I love it. I'm here for it personally. <laughs> I think it's a good thing. I think it, it, it just, because I'm so people centered too. And, and I'm always the one who's like, I, I want what's best for people. Um, and I want people to know what's best for them and, and what will make them thrive. And so that's why I am personally here for the great resignation. I think it's a good thing. And I, and I think we're, we're going to see some great things in the workplace because of it. We're going to see some necessary changes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm glad that you brought that up because so many folks are taking this opportunity to, as you said, identify, you know, their values, identify their needs in the workplace. We spend such a, a big portion of our lives in the workplace. Um, and so people feel that flexibility and that empowerment to say, okay, in a workplace, it's not just about the financial compensation and the benefits package, which definitely, you know, are still important, but it is about, and I love how you said, you know, am I valued? Am I heard? Are my contributions acknowledged? Um, Mm -hmm. All of that is part of a workplace culture. And I'm thinking also just tangibly in regards to workplace culture, like, are the expectations that you're going to work, you know, above and beyond your, your stated hours are the expectations that you have to be physically present, you know, in, in a building, right. Are the expectations that, you know, you respond um, within an hour to any type of correspondence, right. That fast paced environment. And I think a lot of people are definitely, you know, rethinking those aspects of, you know, workplace culture for sure. Yeah. And, and the reason I gave that example, because I wanted to give something that I think most people are aware of, because sometimes, you know, in DE and I, we talk about very specific things and mm-hmm. people have different understandings of diversity, equity, inclusion, and some of the different things going on um, in DE and I. But I think that is one thing that everybody is aware of <laughs> right mm-hmm. now, like, because a lot of people are experiencing it. And, and so that, that's just like a, a current example of culture and how important it is and how much of a role it plays um, in people's experiences. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I also was thinking um, as you were talking about some, uh, I heard some really great presentations by students recently about mm-hmm. ways to make the university more inclusive. And they were really focusing a lot around um, different Um, ability status, kind of as you mentioned before, and things just like making sure your videos have captions or that there's sign language interpreters available. And those are all parts of creating an inclusive environment, one where people feel valued, one where um, folks aren't trying to uh, work around a university or organization to try to you know, make themselves feel a part of, but rather where the organization takes those efforts proactively to ensure, again, that equity piece, right? Absolutely. And you know what, when we talk about equity to one thing in inclusion, one thing I forgot to mention that I really want to touch on is the importance of allowing people to bring their authentic selves to places mm-hmm. um, and, and, and spaces. And a lot of times we say, like as organizations, we say, yes, we want our employees to be their authentic selves, but maybe our actions don't align with that, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really important. And I, I'm glad you touched on that example because it's really important for us to allow students and faculty and staff and whatever organization you may be working in, allow them to feel 
comfortable enough to say, hey, I need this. You know, this is a part of my identity. I, I have, you know, this, like I need an interpreter or, or someone who can do sign language. Um, and not just because of the inclusion piece, but because it really does allow people to feel like, you know what, I can be my authentic self in this space. My employer values, values me so much that I, I can speak up and say, hey, this is what I need to feel included. So yeah, it, it, it's so much to it. And, and I'm glad to use that example. Yeah, but you know, even in listening to, um, to you talk on that point, I think you brought up a key piece about workplace culture, which is, are, do people even feel comfortable with kind of bringing up their concerns or bringing up their, you know, their questions, which oftentimes workplaces create a culture where, you know, you cannot question or you can't even make constructive kind of criticism or suggestions because it is very, you know, immovable, right? Like there is, there's no, compromise there's no kind of you know growth it is more of a these are the rules this is how it is this is how it's always been type of thing and that's so true and I think that's why I'm so here for the great resignation movement right because it's holding our feet to the fire right? it's mm -hmm. like for the longest the employers have controlled the narrative and said okay if you want to work for this company this is what you have to do like let's be honest there was this expectation of you conform right mm -hmm. conform to our norms conform to what we think is the best way to behave in the workplace or the best way to be um, where now people are like no I want the option to be able to work from home I need this I need more resources and they're controlling the narrative and they're controlling their experience and saying mm -hmm. this is what I need in order to be successful so mm -hmm. and, and a lot of that is important if we're gonna uh you know think about people bringing their authentic selves to work, then we have to be willing to listen to, to students and employees uh, and individuals we work with and let them tell us what they need in order to be successful. Mm -hmm. I love this idea of bringing your authentic self to work. Although I'll be honest, it kind of scares me a little. How authentic and how much of myself do you want me to bring <laughs> to work? I know it, there is a fine balance with that too, right? Because, you know, certain organizations like, uh, you know, I'm looking like they do like some cool stuff. I'm like, but I don't know, maybe that's too, <laughs> too extreme. I mean, of course you still have to abide by like certain employee policies and stuff you can't just come in like it, for example if you work in corporate they have very clear expectations about the way you dress and the way you know whereas you know in academe we could kind of if we want to wear flip-flops to work one day especially as a faculty member you could get away with it I, I know some faculty who wear sandals year-round I love them too they're some of the most brilliant people I know whereas in corporate you probably can't get away with that. So yeah, there's still certain parameters there. But when I say authentic self, it's more about people um, feeling comfortable with um, being able to be who they are and voice some of their concerns and and voice some of the needs that, that will make them feel more included in that culture. So that's what, it, that's what I mean. Not necessarily coming in with a mohawk or anything. <laughs> Although I love a good mohawk, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I love but I do think it's important to bring your authentic self that you shouldn't feel like you have to suppress or be silent particularly around things that you need in the workplace in order to 
feel a sense of belonging. I think, as you mentioned, you know, with the great resignation, you know, a lot of folks are taking the opportunity to say, you know what, I, I really haven't felt like I'm a valued member of this community or a valued member of this organization. And so I think I'm going to, you know, use this opportunity to look for other, you know, other employment, look for other places where I might be more valued, um, a more valued member of this organization. And I think that's really important. Um, you know, we're both in higher ed. So, I mean, I can think about all the times, particularly um, with faculty of color who move because of these feelings of not feeling valued, not feeling heard, and a culture where, you know, they're not included in a, in a variety of ways, whether it is, whether it's curriculum or programming um, or just other workplace considerations that they're not extended. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and if, if we could stay on higher ed for a minute, um, mm -hmm. one of the things that I think is important is the focus on retention efforts too. A lot of times, and that's going back to the diversity part, right? A lot of times we're, we're focused on, oh, let's get them in the door. Look, we're so diverse. But then, you know, when you look at the turnover and, and see like, why do we keep losing great people? We're hiring diverse talent but they won't stay. And a lot of it does have to do with experience. And so um, organizations have to be very mindful of, you know, recruiting and hiring is not enough. Same thing with students, just, you know, recruiting students is not enough. What are we doing in terms of retention? Um, what, what programs do we have in place? What initiatives do we have in place? What, what, what resources are needed to make sure that faculty, students, staff, administration, even alumni, like I mentioned, uh, have that full experience of, you know what, I feel a sense of belonging here. And they actually graduate or they actually stay within the organization and not just stay within the organization in terms of faculty, but actually have uh, success beyond, you know, if they, and, and that's another thing too, looking at the pipeline. Um, I think it's really important that we create opportunities for faculty and staff um, of color who, who want to move up in ranks, like who want to be able to develop in different areas. Um, we, we need to have those programs and resources available. Uh, to, hey, do you want to go to this conference? Or, and, you know, it's just, I, I guess I'm kind of, it's like a lift as you climb analogy going on there. But I think institutions need to be very strategic in making sure that they provide opportunities for employees in the workforce. So that way you're more likely to retain them. Uh, if you say, hey, it's not just about you being in this role. We, we value you so much that we wanna see you grow and become better and do what you wanna do eventually, you know, and be where you wanna be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that brings it back to this idea of resources. So not just saying, okay, we have, you know, a, a diverse um, workforce or we have a diverse student body, but what are the resources that we have in place to invest in, you know, these different members of our community? How can we continue to develop um, their potential or develop their interest and show that we are actually supportive of them and kind of what they want to do within you know, our organization. And I think that's so key. The resources part is always going to be the key whenever we're thinking about, you know, making any type of changes. Uh, we can come up with the best ideas or know what the best practices are. But if we don't actually have the resources behind it, then we're not going to be effective. That, that's absolutely right. And, and you, especially 
and, and it's obvious sometimes you look uh, at different departments, which departments get the most funding as opposed to maybe some of the other departments that don't. Uh, but, you know, if we're serious about it, we have to be willing to put time and resources behind it and, and get talented people who, who have the expertise to really help develop certain initiatives so that we can retain great talent. Because because that's what I've been seeing too, uh, not just the great resignation, but it's just like this revolving door of, you know, you get a great person and then it's like, they stay for a couple of years and they're like, okay, this, this is just not a good fit for me. I don't feel a sense of inclusion here and then they're gone. And mm-hmm. so we have to think about uh, individuals' experiences and, and create a culture where every person feels like, you know what, I want to stay here. I want to grow here. I want to be successful here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Let's take another break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're tuned in to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Mary McConnor, an expert on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we've been chatting about how organizations and higher ed in particular um, can really get behind their commitment to these DE and I efforts. And of course, a big focus on resources. Um, I'm wondering if there are any examples that you can think of of organizations, whether higher ed or other, um, that seem to be doing or that you've seen doing a really good job at DEI efforts and really creating that sense of inclusion and making sure that folks feel valued and feel like contributing members of you know the workplace or the organization. Yeah. You know what? I got to give a shout out to the Junior League of Memphis, if that's all right. Because <laughs> I think because it, we we just came off this really great uh, DE&I program. It's called Apex. And I, I had a chance to talk to the president of the organization. Uh, shout out to Tabitha Glenn. And I love that they have been very strategic in how they broke things out. So it's like, we're going to start with this Apex program. And then we're going to, you know, have this diversity, equity, and inclusion task force. And now we're going to turn it into a committee, like a standing committee, where people can do their placements with this committee. So it's not going anywhere, right? We value this so much that we feel like this is, you know, a a potential opportunity for different members to be a part of it. And so, you know, I got to give a shout out to them. Um, But there are organizations across the country who do, who I think, do a a great job and one thing about higher education there are some things you know that I think we can do better Mm -hmm. Um, but because we are typically institutions where you have a lot of free thinking you have people who are um, you just have a diverse population I do think higher education we do a a really good job um, when it comes to uh, getting behind certain initiatives and social justice uh, things and things in the community. And, and we do a good job co- connecting with um, community partners as well. And I think that's a key thing. Anytime you're doing DE&I work, um, yes, it's important to think about the internal aspect, but it's also important to think about the external aspect of it too. And are we connecting with the community around us, right? Because uh, oftentimes you have these big billion dollar organizations that are in you know, the heart of a city. And then when you leave that organization, you might see just, you know, people who are homeless or it just, it, it's not the same experience. So that's why I think it's really important for organizations to think about how they work with 
community partners and in different organizations within their community as well, if they are serious about DEI and community engagement. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And that's such an important point because you have the organizations or the workplace itself, but those are located within a broader community, um, mm-hmm. whether that's a neighborhood or a city and then, you know, on out. And so these connections are not just within, but across different institutions and organizations as well. Exactly. And I think it gives, it allows the employees uh, to have a certain exposure. Um, and because anytime you're exposed to something, you're growing, right? You're becoming more aware. Um, and so it's good for employees to think about the populations they're in and who they serve. And so by getting out there in the community and saying, okay, you know, we're seeing firsthand some of the needs, um, then, then you become more connected with community engagement. Now that's more community engagement, but uh, still it, it has an important place within DEI in a sense, especially if you're working in diverse cities. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I want to shift the focus just a little bit to what you talked about at the Junior League Apex event, which was allyship. And I know mm-hmm. allyship is a big component of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So could you just talk a little bit about first, just what, what does it mean to be an ally? What is allyship? Yeah. Um, And one of the things I talked about during my my presentation is if you look at any major movement in history, there have always been allies supporting that movement, right? And so allyship is basically, you know, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but it is supporting an organization or a group of individuals, um, especially uh, those who may be disenfranchised or traditionally marginalized or from traditionally underserved uh, populations and saying, you know what, I'm going to use my time, my resources, and my privileges mm-hmm. <laughs> to help um, support individuals who are in need of support. Um, and so essentially uh, there's there's different components to it, right? So you could be a sponsor uh, mm-hmm. or you could be a champion for a certain cause or initiative or group of individuals, um, or even, I mean, there's just so many different ways to be an ally. And you don't necessarily have to be at you know, some march or rally doing, <laughs> you know, holding up a picket sign. Uh, it, it, there's there's so many different ways. Um, and so one of the examples I gave during my presentation is, you know, when you're sponsoring someone, right? That's a form of allyship. It's like, you know, I see a lot of potential in this person. I'm going to sponsor them. Um, and I'm going to uh, do everything I can to uplift this particular person and make sure they're uplifted and their voice is heard so that they can, you know, thrive and be their best selves. So, and it's something we do every, every day. And I think we just don't realize this allyship when we're writing a letter of recommendation for a student, we're mm-hmm. saying this student is an excellent, you know, young pupil, not pupil, but an excellent student. And this is why they should be admitted to your program or uh, just, there's just so many different ways to support people um, and causes and organizations. And so that's why I really felt like it was important for us to recognize that we do it every day in the Junior League of Memphis. Um, we, we work with different community partners and we're doing everything we can um, to better our community. So. Mm-hmm. I love- in <laughs> yes, yes, uh, yes. I love this idea of really breaking down how we can be allies in everyday life. 
Because I think sometimes when it comes to DE&I or even allyship, folks think it has to be some kind of like big display or it is something that's separate from your everyday life. And it's really something that's infused throughout your, your, both your work life and your personal life as well. So it doesn't, you don't have to identify as an activist right behind some cause because that can sound very daunting to people. Um, But instead, I love this example of just an everyday action, especially thinking in higher ed of being a quote unquote sponsor. Mm-hmm. And when you said the letter of recommendation, it reminded me of I was on a hiring committee and reading, of course, letters of recommendation. And this faculty member had written just this amazing letter of recommendation for a student. And mm-hmm. It was so good. I actually wanted to keep a copy of it because I was like, I wish for one day to be able to write such a supportive letter for somebody. And what stood out was not just, you know, all of, you know, the glowing (laughs) words that they had to say about this student as far as, you know, their academic achievement or their involvement on campus, but also because the um, faculty member uh, addressed some of what might be perceived weaknesses on that candidate's um, application. And so I think maybe the student had maybe not so great test scores and the faculty member, you know, really broke down like how test scores um, don't correlate with students success in, in, in this case, in a graduate program, right, which is true, and like incorporated those stats on it, and then also incorporated um, studies that show some of these tests like GRE and these other graduate placement tests have um, bias, right, with embedded within those tests, and so I thought that was such a great way of this person, you know, using their, their privilege, their position of power as a faculty member to really address some inequalities that are embedded in in this case in the testing process but also really going to bat for this student in a way where I was like we have to accept this student like we just have to right right Right. and we do it every day we don't and that's the thing about allyship we do it and we don't realize we're doing it we don't realize that we're uh, there are certain actions we're taking or certain privileges that we may have as leaders and faculty members that's really helping someone else and really creating a level playing field for that person. I love that example you just provided about because there has been so much research that has shown, you know, sometimes with tests, there's a lot of some bias there. Like not everyone is going to be successful when taking standardized tests. There's just Mm -hmm. so much research on it. And so I love that. But that, that particular faculty member uh, was able to not only speak to the student's character and the things that they bring, but they also speak to um, maybe some things that they did not necessarily do well on and why, you know, that, that to me, that's allyship at its finest. I think that's a great example. Yeah. And I'm just thinking too about, as you mentioned, like other ways we can be allies in our daily lives is always, you know, speaking up, not letting someone, uh, you know, kind of leave them out to dry, you know, to be the only person to call attention to something, even if it's saying like, hey, I think we should really, you know, give this person's concerns, like give them some real consideration. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that can go a long way as well. Absolutely. And I will say, I, I have been lucky in that I, you know, as a woman of color, um, as a black woman to be specific with, 
who was neurodivergent. I have been lucky to have some really great colleagues who are like, oh, wait, let's make sure that are you, do you have the resources you need? Can you hear okay? Because, you know, sometimes I have to focus a little bit more to take notes. And so we see it every day. And, and that's the amplifier, right? Saying like, oh, wait, how can I amplify your voice and your experience to make sure you have what you need? And so we just, we see it all the time. And that's the beauty of it. Um, and we just have to realize that um, it's, it's a part of who we are. Looking out for people is truly who we are at our core. And it's what makes us great. Yes, absolutely. So I know we're getting close to the end of our time together this morning, but I'm wondering for you, as you kind of look to the future of where DE&I efforts might be going, is there something that you're hopeful for or something that you hope that for our listeners that they can incorporate thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, even in their workplaces, wherever they may be? Yeah, um, I am hopeful, I think, because there's so much awareness around it right now with all of the different um, issues uh, that have arisen and then the different things like, you know, George Floyd, mm-hmm. uh, Breonna Taylor, some of those uh, situations. I think people are seeing it. And I think, I mean, it's always been there and we know it's been there, but they see it and they're like, okay, we have to do something. I think the key is figuring out, okay, what do we do next? And a lot of people, the intent is there. I think the sincerity is there. Um, It's just not knowing what the next step should be. So um, I think the biggest thing is making sure that you have individuals within your organizations who can really bring a certain expertise to help you figure out how to best roll out certain strategic plans and initiatives and how to be champions in a way that's authentic. So it, it doesn't, and I didn't talk about this too much and I know <laughs> we're coming up on the end, but you never want your DE&I efforts to come off performative. Mm. Never want it to come off as, okay, we're doing this is because this is the hot thing to do right now. You know, you want people to feel like, okay, they're serious about this. This is authentic. And so that's why I think it's important to have uh, experts and then be supportive of those experts uh, and, and recognize that it's, it's, it's a collective, you know, mm-hmm. it, it takes a collective to really drive those initiative and efforts home. And so, yeah, I mean, you hear different things like, oh, if it, it has to be everybody's work, <laughs> you know, and I know that's kind of cliche, but in a sense, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be everybody's work, but everyone has to recognize its importance um, in order for it to, to be effective. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. McConnor, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It was such a pleasure to talk to you about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. You know, I got to come back. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Well, thank you again to Dr. Mary McConnor for chatting with us this morning about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I just want to echo what she said at the end, which is even if it may not be everyone's work to do, it is everyone's role to understand the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And to remember that there are ways that all of us can be allies to folks. It doesn't have to be, you know, activism where we're out in the streets, but it can be on things that we do simply in our own workplace, whether it's amplifying someone's message in a meeting um, or just being attuned to the different needs that your coworkers 
teachers have or in the higher education setting, of course, being attuned to your student body and understanding what their needs are by asking them and not assuming that you know what students might need. And I think that's applicable to a lot of different organizations as well, that we do have to talk to the folks and not assume that we know what's best or we know what they need. Well, this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday, I am here chatting with experts from across the country. And if you ever miss a show, don't worry, because we have all the archive shows on WYXR.org. And if you like to listen in podcast format, be sure to subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee wherever you stream podcasts. Until next Monday, I'm Sanaa.